Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christoginia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, July 24th, 2021. Right now, once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthfids here with us to present his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part 45 of this series of presentations. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we shall continue our explanation of how many of the blessings of Jacob and Moses upon the twelve tribes of Israel had evidently been fulfilled in the history of the development of European culture and civilization. As we have already said, when the promises were made to Abraham that his seed would become many nations. There was no Germany, England, France, nor any other European nation as we know them, and most of the tribes which ultimately became the nations of modern Europe were not yet in Europe. That is because they mostly descended from the ancient Israelites of our Bibles. But usually, by the time they arrived in Europe, they had assumed other names. So we began this review with the blessings of Judah, and now we are in the middle of our discussion of Levi. Hello, Truthfits. Thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, yeah, so here we're going to see a lot of um, like little snippets from uh, ancient history on the Druids, and, and although it's lots of little bits from different authors, if you put it all together, you get a kind of picture that shows that they were incredibly similar to the Levitical priests, that they served the same function essentially in society, that um, all rituals were done by them, uh, a lot of the laws, the judges, you know, it's ve very close. The whole society was, was in a similar kind of structure as uh, with the tribes of Levi, um, you know, in the original kingdom, that, that it's very close. And that you can clearly see that they're connected, that they're the same people, right? And um, perhaps also that's how um, Christianity spread so quickly in um, Britain originally, that they kind of already had this old Levitical system, and, and I believe they had uh, a savior, a Yesu, and that when uh, the knowledge of Jesus did come, that it that it did spread very quickly, right? Uh, right, Bill? Well, well, absolutely. The similarities that we're going to point out here between the, the, the Magi and the, and the Druids, especially, and the Levites, the similarities weren't 100%. There were diversions or, or departures from what we see in Scripture. The departures should be expected because the children of Israel had gone pagan which is the reason why they were deported in the first place. But they can't be coincidental because they were so alien to the Romans and ostensibly to the Greeks. The Romans, the Roman historians had mentioned how alien and how repulsive they thought and how barbaric they thought that the practices of the Druids and the Magis were. And 
Therefore, it is not coincidental and it is not some sort of natural progression to develop such a belief system in the development of a society. If it were, then the Romans wouldn't have thought that it was so alien and repulsive. So that there are that there are um several factors supporting our contention that these Magi and these Druids, that their practices were indeed, had indeed stemmed from the ancient land of Canaan and the ancient Levitical priests. That's my contention. The thesis isn't quite fully developed, but we will present it here with, with many excerpts from the classical writers and some other sources. In our last presentation, we had some citations from the notes found in the Annals of Ireland translated from the original Irish of the Four Masters, which was translated by Owen Connellan and first published in 1846. These citations describe some of the beliefs and practices of the ancient Druids as they were remembered by the medieval sages and we saw that many of them corresponded with those of the ancient Levitical priests of our Bibles. But now, because so little of the ancient Irish literature was preserved, and hardly anything predating the 8th century AD, we shall turn to Latin and Greek writers for their understanding of the Druids. And a lot of this presentation has been summarized from notes that I did several years ago with Sven Longshanks for a podcast titled Druids and Early Christianity in Britain. So it, it's in some ways going to repeat portions of that podcast. Some of these citations, most of these citations I had researched long ago and, and compiled long ago, but they're just as relevant here. They're even more relevant, in fact, to our assertions our direct assertions that the Levitical priests and the Druids are indeed related. Our first citation will be from Julius Caesar. It'll be quite lengthy. From Book 6 of De Bello Gallico, or The Gallic Wars. And we will cite chapters 13, 14, and 16. I don't know if you have anything to say. Yeah, I was just going to say that um, uh, often they look down upon the Druids, and, and I think that's, uh, as we're going to say, war propaganda, right? They would always um, make the Britons and before that the Gauls as barbarians and uh, to justify all their wars against them. And, and that's the reason it's often exaggerated. And there would, of course, also be rumors and stuff like that. But no doubt uh, the Levitical priesthood did degenerate and, and some of the things may have been true but a lot of it is exaggerated right the the what the war propaganda that we'll see here yes i absolutely do believe that a lot of this is exaggerated that many of these citations are from the same general period of time julius caesar strabo Diodorus siculus pliny the elder that they all lived roughly in the same period within, I think, 150 years or, or 140 years. But that's beside the point. 
this material about the British, where it has commonality with that of the Irish writers, the medieval Irish writers, we can see what's truthful in it, and we could hold at least some of it suspect as Roman war propaganda, which we will mention a little later also. I, I had noticed that when I first compiled this material back in 2015, but I had noticed it when I read all these books 15, 20 years ago. So, so that's to be understood that the Romans are going to seek to um, exploit the alien religion to justify the wars. Uh, and they did the same thing with Carthage, and they did the same thing with other eastern and and barbarian provinces which they had conquered. From Julius Caesar's The Gallic Wars, Book 6, Chapter 13. Throughout all Gaul, there are two orders of those men who are of any rank and dignity. For the commonality is held almost in the condition of slaves and dares to undertake nothing of itself and is admitted to no deliberation. Well, well, that's what Caesar had actually envisioned for Rome as well, as he wanted to be the emperor, as he aspired to being an emperor and disposing of the republic. The greater part, when they are pressed either by debt or the large amount of their tributes, or the oppression of the more powerful, give themselves up in vassalage to the nobles, who possess over them the same rights without exception as masters over their slaves. And and I just have to take another digression here, I'm sorry. But in the later empire, the empire that Julius Caesar first in, endeavored to create, and of course it was taken up by his adopted son, Octavian, who did create it, men, common Roman men, saw everybody as a slave because there was only one free man who could do his own will, and that was the emperor. And that was life under the empire. And that was recognized 2,000 years ago. So what Julius Caesar is propagandizing against here, he actually had designs to put into effect in Rome. So it, it's amazing that the hypocrisy, because the result of Julius Caesar's life was this very thing that he was writing about in Rome, where, where all Roman citizens had ultimately become slaves to a single emperor. So that being said, but of these two orders, one is that of the Druids, the other, that of the knights. The former are engaged in things sacred, conduct the public and the private sacrifices, and interpret all matters of religion. To these, a larger number of the young men resort for the purpose of instruction, and they, the Druids, are in great honor among them. This was the same role which the Levites served in the assemblies of the ancient Israelites. For they determine respecting almost all controversies, public and private, and if any crime has been perpetrated, 
if murder has been committed, if there be any dispute about an inheritance, if any about boundaries, these same persons decide it, they decree rewards and punishments. If anyone, either in a private or public capacity, has not submitted to their decision, they interdict him from the sacrifices. So you're alienated from the tribal gods or God. The ancient Levites also served this role, and while not all of the judges were Levites, many were, such as Eli and Samuel, but the local towns and villages all had Levites for their own local matters to serve as judges, and they maintained the cities of refuge in cases of, so that that there would be, ideally, there would be fair trials in cases of murder, manslaughter, where perhaps it, it may not be justified, but it could be ruled accidental and things like that, so that unjust vengeance wasn't executed, or vengeance was executed in, in the case of a, a, a just outcome. So the Levites had performed the same role in among the ancient Israelites, that Caesar is attributing to the Druids here. So, Bill, do you think that helped with impartiality, where they had um, their own land, uh, but no property outside that, and they just lived on tithes, that, that it made it harder to bribe them, in a way? Well, well, yes, if everybody paid the same tithe, and if they were upright, then they had no interest in the outcome of any case. And it should have been, it should have facilitated impartiality in their judgment. Now, that's not to say that anybody could try to bribe a judge with more money or extra money or, or whatever. But if they're all collecting that tithe and they're all living comfortably by the standards of the day, which they should have, the tithes should have facilitated that, and they have no land or any other interests that might be affected by by the outcome of a judgment, yeah, that should have lent to impartiality, we would hope. They didn't have yeah, the... Yeah, but Eli's sons, obviously, it didn't work, right? <laughs> so, right. So. I mean, some men were corrupt, yes, and, and there's no doubt and there's no escaping that. But they did not have the consumer culture that we have today. That they, they, it was difficult in the, the Israelite culture. It was difficult to accumulate riches without notice also. They couldn't hide wealth away in, in securities, say. Most wealth was either in land or in cattle or in the accumulation of treasure. And it was, they didn't have wealth outside of those things, material wealth. So the material wealth you have would always be much more evident than we see today. They didn't have cash back then, right? They may have had um, promissory notes and, and contracts, but they did not have tons of cash laying around that they could hide in, in a small space. Continuing with Caesar, those who had been thus interdicted 
are esteemed in the number of the impious and the criminal. And of course, the later popes were doing that same thing. All shun them and avoid their society and conversation, lest they receive some evil from their contact. Nor is justice administered to them when seeking it, nor is any dignity bestowed on them. Over all these druids, one presides, who possesses the supreme authority among them. And and likewise, there was one principal judge in Israel, although the principal judge was not always a Levite, and there was one high priest who had authority over all the other priests. Upon his death, if any individual among the rest is preeminent in dignity, he succeeds. But if there are many equal, the election is made by the suffrages of the Druids. That means by voting. Sometimes they even contend for the presidency with arms. These assemble at a fixed period of the year in a consecrated place in the territories of the Carnutes, which is reckoned in the central region of the whole of Gaul. Hither all who have disputes assemble from every part and submit to their decrees and determinations. This institution is supposed to have been devised in Britain and to have been brought over from it into Gaul, and that supposition seems to have been on the part of the Romans, and now those who desire to gain a more accurate knowledge of that system generally proceed thither for the purpose of studying it. In in other words, Caesar is saying that Druids had traveled or uh, aspiring Druids, perhaps, had traveled from Gaul to Britain to study Druidism. The Druids do not go to war, nor pay tribute together with the rest. They have an exemption from military service, and a dispensation in all matters. So the Levites did not go to war. We see that in Numbers chapter 1, verses 45 to 47. And neither did they pay tribute as they had received tribute, that they were the receivers of tithes. Induced by such great advantages, many embrace this profession to their of their own accord, and many are sent to it by their parents and relations. And this is, of course, a departure from the ancient Israelites, where it belonged to a single tribe. They are said there to learn by heart a great number of verses. Accordingly, some remain in the course of training 20 years. Nor do they regard it lawful to commit these to writing, Though in almost all other matters, in their public and private transactions, they use Greek characters. And and this is also a departure unless, unless Caesar only thought that the Hebrew characters or Phoenician characters were Greek, which is a great possibility. That practice they seem to me to have adopted for two reasons because they neither desire their doctrines to be divulged among the mass of the people, nor those who learn to devote themselves the less to the efforts of memory, relying on writing, since it generally occurs to most men that in their dependence on writing, they relax their diligence in learning thoroughly, and their employment 
of the memory. So, so Caesar's saying that perhaps they only learned orally so that they really learned instead of depending on looking things up in books and, and not really memorizing what the book said. So I believe it was Strabo who had said, and I could be wrong, it could have been Theodorus because I often confuse the two. I believe it was Strabo who had said that the Gauls or the Galatahi of Asia did not write in their own language, that they used Greek letters to write. So there's a similarity there and a connection. Continuing with Caesar. They wish to inculcate this as one of their leading tenets, that souls do not become extinct, but pass after death from one body to another. That's a belief in what's called transmigration. And they think that men by this tenet are in a great degree excited to valor, the fear of death being disregarded. They likewise discuss and impart to the youth many things respecting the stars and their motion, respecting the extent of the world and of our earth, respecting the nature of things, respecting the power and majesty of the immortal gods. And here Caesar seems to have been describing druidical beliefs in terms familiar to the Romans. And Hebrews did not believe in the migration of souls. But Hebrews did believe in eternal life the eternal life of the spirit, describing the Gauls, the Galatahi of Germany, Strabo had noted their lack of fear in battle because of their belief in the eternal life of the spirit, that they wouldn't really die if they died in the flesh. Diodorus Siculus, in his Library of History, Book 5, I believe, had actually been my source for that. And he also attributed this belief, this Pythagorean belief, to the Gauls, because Pythagoras, the Greek philosopher, had believed in the transmigration of souls. But it wasn't an ancient Hebrew belief. Not everything the Druids believed or taught, need to belong to Hebrews, as they had adopted paganism long before they were removed from ancient Israel. It's very clear that a lot of the Levites, the priests, had, had adopted paganism and had departed from the religion which was passed on by Moses, by from Yahweh, right? On to chapter 16 of the Gallic War, Book 6. The nation of all the Gauls is extremely devoted to superstitious rites, and on that account they who are troubled with unusually severe diseases, and they who are engaged in battles and dangers, either sacrifice men as victims or vow that they will sacrifice them, and employ the Druids as the performers of those sacrifices, because they think that unless the life of a man be offered for the life of a man, the mind of the immortal gods cannot be rendered propitious, and they have sacrifices of that kind ordained for national purposes. And, and the ancient Israelites had something called 
a soldier's ransom for a similar purpose in Exodus chapter 30, where we read in part, when thou takest the sum of the children of Israel after their number, then shall they give every man a ransom for his soul unto Yahweh. When thou numberest them, that there be no plague among them when thou numberest them. And thou shalt take the atonement money of the children of Israel, that soldier's ransom, and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of the congregation, that it may be a memorial unto the children of Israel before Yahweh to make an atonement for your souls. So all the men going to war, this soldier's ransom was paid so that they may keep their lives. Others, continuing with Julius Caesar, Others have figures of vast size, the limbs of which formed of osiers. They fill with living men, meaning the figures of vast size are filled with living men, which being set on fire, the men perish, enveloped in the flames. They consider that the oblation of such as having as had been taken in theft or in robbery or any other offense is more acceptable to the immortal gods. But when a supply of that class is wanting, they have recourse to the oblation of even the innocent. And to me, some of this is obviously Roman war propaganda. The Druids and all of the Galatahi or Gauls or Celts which at this time includes the Germans, because the Germans were Galatahi, whom the Romans had distinguished as Germans. The name was a Roman name for the Galatahi of the land east of the Rhine and north of the Danube. They had all executed men who were guilty of certain crimes. Even today, the bodies of those who were executed are found in bogs, and modern so-called anthropologists point to them as some sort of sacrifice victims. Yet the historian Tacitus said in his Germania, chapter 12, speaking of the punishments of criminals by the Germanic tribes, the assembly is competent also to hear criminal charges, speaking of the people in general especially those involving the risk of capital punishment. The mode of execution varies according to the offense. Traitors and deserters are hanged on tree. Cowards, shirkers, and sodomites are pressed down under a wicker hurdle into the slimy mud of a bog. This distinction in the punishments is based on the idea that offenders against the state should be made a public example of. They should be hung publicly. Whereas deeds of shame should be buried out of men's sight. Now, Tacitus might have had his own reasons to create propaganda, but he seems to have had personal experience in observing the Germanic tribes, and it's reflected in that work, the Germania. So it, it seems that putting that account together with archaeology, we have a much better explanation for the bog bodies 
than simply believing that they were sacrifices to some sort of mud mud god or, or some odd deity. And it's interesting that the Germanic tribes and Britons were so against sodomy, right? When um, Rome had devolved, where they no longer really cared much about it. That that why were the Germanic tribes so against it, right? It must have been in their belief system that it right. was a serious sin. And and Tacitus had made several. That this other propaganda, and I believe it's wartime propaganda from Julius Caesar regarding the Gauls and pederasty. So, take that for, for what you will. I don't generally accept it. However, in other places in his Germania, Tacitus made examples of what he professed was the morality of the Gauls of Germany, the, the German people, and compared it to the immorality of Rome. He even made a statement, I forget exactly where it is in the Germania, but he made a statement that the Germans didn't have any um, sexual immorality was the implication they didn't partake in such things and call it modern. It, in other words, there were Romans who were trying to push the acceptance of sexual immorality as being fashionable or modern. And we see the same exact phenomenon today in our modern society. That all of a sudden homosexuality is okay because now we're in the 21st century and we're not in the 18th century any longer. So homosexuality should be accepted now. That's generally the, the first line of argument that sodomites use to have their practices accepted by society. And, and that's an ages-old tactic because Tacitus wrote about it. So, there it is. Next, we shall cite Diodorus Siculus, who was a contemporary of Julius Caesar. And, and seeing the end of my citation, and, and seeing that I cited Diodorus Siculus in relation to the Pythagorean belief of transmigration, which was attributed to the Gauls and the Druids, it was Diodorus that had stated that they were fearless in battle on account of their belief that their spirits were eternal. You read so much and everything gets confounded after a while. At least in my old brain. Diodorus Siculus, Library of History, Book 5, Chapter 31. The Gauls are terrifying in aspect, and their voices are deep and altogether harsh. When they meet together, they converse with few words and in riddles. I would say perhaps these things were riddles to an outsider, right? Hinting darkly at things for the most part and using one word when they mean another. And they like to talk in superlatives, to the end that they may extol themselves and depre depreciate all other men. They are also boasters and threateners, and are fond of 
pompous language, and yet they have sharp wits and are not without cleverness at learning. Among them are also found to be lyric poets whom they call bards. These men sing to the accompaniment of instruments which are like lyres, and their songs may be either of praise or of obloquy. The Levitical priests typically fulfilled this role in Israel, singing in, in the temples, in the synagogues, although ideally their praise was directed at Yahweh their God and their obloquy at his enemies. Continuing with Diodorus, philosophers, as we may call them, and men learned in religious affairs are unusually honored among them and are called by them druids. The Gauls likewise make use of diviners, accounting them worthy of high approbation, and these men foretell the future by means of the flight or cries of birds and of the slaughter of sacred animals, and they have all the multitudes subservient to them. Now, now, the law forbid diviners in Israel, but reading Homer, this same sort of diviner was employed quite commonly among the ancient Greeks. At least Homer attributed the practice to both Greeks and to Trojans, I believe. They also observe a custom which is especially astonishing and incredible, in case they are taking thought with respect to matters of great concern. For in such cases they devote to death a human being and plunge a dagger into him in the region above the diaphragm. And when the stricken victim has fallen, they read the future from the manner of his fall and from the twitching of his limbs, as well as from the gushing of the blood, having learned to place confidence in an ancient and long-continued practice of observing such manners. Now, among the Greeks described by Homer, augurs, they were called, this sort of diviner, augurs had observed the sacrifice of animals and examine the entrails for these same reasons. Or they would examine the flights of birds, whether they came from the left or from the right, and, and they would see omens in that, foreboding good or evil. But human sacrifice, according to the Old Testament, especially of the children, especially human sacrifice of children, was common among the Canaanites, and then the Israelites who would follow them. Although it is not found in Scripture for this particular reason, for prophesying or seeing the future. Continuing with Diodorus, and it is a common custom of theirs that no one should perform a sacrifice without a philosopher, meaning without a druid, for thanks offering, thank offering should be rendered to the gods, they say, by the hands of men who are experienced in the nature of the divine, and who speak, as it were, the language of the gods. And it is also, it is also through the mediation of such men, they think, that blessings likewise should be sought. And, Likewise, once the Levitical priesthood was established, the Israelites did not sacrifice without a priest. We see that, for example, in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Nor 
continuing with Diodorus, nor is it only in the exigencies of peace, but in their wars as well, that they obey before all others, these men and their chanting poets. And such obedience is observed not only by their friends, but also by their enemies. Many times, for instance, when two armies approach each other in battle with swords drawn and spears thrust forward, these men step forth between them and cause them to cease, as though having a cast a spell over certain kinds of wild beasts. In this way, even among the wildest barbarians, does passion give place before wisdom, and heirs stand in awe of the muses. In other words, the god of war stands in awe or in respect or in fear of the poets. The kings and people of Israel had often inquired of the prophets who were of the tribe of Levi before going to war. Or they had inquired of the high priest before going to war. So he means that um, if two armies were going to face a uh, druid or Levite could run out and stop the war and they would immediately just cease in in respect to the druid, right? That's what he's uh, implying here. Well, well, right, but evidently both armies were Celtic or Gallic, if you will. Both armies respected the priesthood of the druids in order to give deference to it, right? I mean, a Roman army wouldn't listen to a druid, so... Ostensibly, this is speaking of wars between the various tribes of the Britons or the various tribes of Gaul. Strabo of Cappadocia followed Diodorus Siculus by around 50 years. I believe um, Diodorus Siculus stopped writing in 34 BC or right around then. And Strabo died in 25 AD, or thereabouts. So from Strabo's Geography, Book 4, Chapter 4. Among all the Gallic peoples, peoples of the Galatahi, it would read in Strabo's Greek, generally speaking, there are three sects three sets of men who are held in exceptional honor. The bards, the Vates, V-A-T-E-S, and the Druids. The bards are singers and poets. The Vates, diviners and natural philosophers. While the Druids, in addition to natural philosophy, study also moral philosophy. And, And with different names... These same roles were filled mostly by Levites in the Old Testament. Now, now, there were exceptions such as David or Nathan, who I believe was of the, of the tribe of Judah, and, and those men were philosophers in their own right. Solomon was a philosopher in his own right and he was of the tribe of Judah. There were exceptions, but most of the bards and the philosophers, if you will, if you want to consider 
the study of the Hebrew law, the study of the word of God, philosophy, which it could be considered a particular type of philosophy, the love of the wisdom of God is the true philosophy. So among the Levites, the prophets, the prophets in Israel were a section of the tribe of Levi for the most part, and the priests who taught moral philosophy from the law, they were all Levites among the Hebrews. Yet here we have these Druids who were assigned all of these same specialties, if you will. And they're all branches of, of this same race or, or this caste among the Bretons. The Druids are considered the most just of men. And on this account, they are entrusted with the decision, not only of the private disputes, but of the public disputes as well, so that in former times they even arbitrated cases of war and made the opponents stop when they were about to line up for battle, just as we saw in Diodorus Siculus, we see in Strabo. And the murder cases, in particular, had been turned over to them for decision. And this role was also fulfilled by the Levites, especially in the cities of refuge. Further, when there is a big yield from these cases, there is forthcoming a big yield from the land too, as they think. However, not only the Druids, but others as well, say that men's souls and also the universe are indestructible, although both fire and water will at some time or other prevail over them. And, and the Hebrews believed that men's spirits were indestructible, just like the Druids. In addition to their trait of simplicity and high-spiritedness, that of witlessness and boastfulness is much in evidence, and also that of fondness for ornaments, for they not only wear golden ornaments, both chains around their necks and bracelets around their arms and wrists, but their dignitaries wear garments that are dyed in colors and sprinkled with gold. And by reason of this levity of character, they not only look insufferable when victorious, but also scared out of their wits when worsted. Again, in addition to their witlessness, there is also that custom, barbarous and exotic, which attends most of the northern tribes. I mean the fact that when they depart from the battle, they hang the heads of their enemies from the necks of their horses, and when they have brought them home, nail the spectacle to the entrances of their homes. Now, we see hints of that in the Old Testament, but it's not commonplace. At any rate, Poseidon, po, I'm sorry, Posidonius says that, and it actually means of Poseidon, says that he himself saw this spectacle in many places, and that although at first he loathed it, afterwards, through his familiarity with it, he could bear it calmly. Posidonius was an early 1st century BC philosopher, geographer, and historian. He sojourned among the Celts in the first decade of that century, probably about 90 BC. 
The heads of enemies of high repute, however, they used to embalm them in cedar oil and exhibit to strangers. And they would not deign to give them back even for for a ransom of an equal weight of gold. But the Romans put a stop to these customs, as well as to all those connected with the sacrifices and divinations that are opposed to our usages. In other words, the Romans, wherever they conquered the Gauls, had exerted the Roman religion upon them. They used to strike a human being, we saw this in Caesar also, whom they had devoted to death in the back with a saber, and then divine from his death struggle. But they would not sacrifice without the Druids. We are told of still other kinds of human sacrifices. For example, they would shoot victims to death with arrows, or impale them in the temples, or having devised a colossus of straw and wood, Strabo may be repeating this from Caesar, he may be using Caesar as his source for this, that's a possibility, throw into the Colossus cattle and wild animals of all sorts and human beings, and then make a burnt offering of the whole thing. So while the Romans were no often less barbaric, among other things, the an important point was that the Gauls did not sacrifice without a druid. And um, where the Romans conquered, they got rid of all of this. It wasn't necessary because they were only against Druidism. It's because they wanted everybody to worship the Roman emperor, right? That that was the main course. They wanted one religion, one state, everyone unified, right? A, a kind of beast system, so to speak. Well, well, precisely, and and even though the Romans had had tolerated what I have to call Judaism, for lack of a better term, they tolerated Judaism. They nevertheless sought, at various times in history, to impose their religion upon the people of Judea, such as when they had attempted on a couple of occasions to set up the banners and images of the emperor in the temple of God in Jerusalem. So they were always imposing their own religion upon all of the conquered peoples of the empire. Early Christians in all of the eastern provinces, early Christians were forced to either sacrifice to Caesar or die as martyrs. So they were enforcing their religion upon all the conquered peoples. Yeah, I've just I've just read before where people tried to argue that the Romans were only against Druidism and Christianity. Uh, those were the only two, but that's not technically true, right? They they just, as you said, just wanted one religion. That would be the ideal position for the Romans: is that everybody worshipped. Caesar and everybody worshiped the gods of Rome. Because if you control people's religion, you control people. The Romans themselves, their religion was mandated by the government. In, in I believe it's in, um, I'm going to come up with the exact passage. Acts chapter 16 
verse 21, the, Paul and Silas were brought to the magistrates, to the local city magistrates. I believe this is in Philippi. I don't want to scroll back and, and try to find out, but I believe it's in Philippi. And Paul and Silas had actually cast a demon out of a girl that these men were profiting from. And the girl would be able to make divinations because she was possessed by this demon. That this is the narrative in Acts. And, and Paul, Paul and Silas cast the demon out of her so the girl could no longer divine. Now, divination was fine in ancient Rome. Certain types of divination were certainly accepted or acceptable. You just couldn't ki go killing Roman citizens and, and watch their, their bodies to see what the outcome of something would be, which is what they attribute to the Celts. But the Romans did, and, and the Greeks did partake in other forms of divination, or augury, if I should call it that. Well, well, these men had brought Paul and Silas to the magistrates and stated that they had taught customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. The Roman religion was regulated and Romans were compelled to follow the state religion. setting up images of Caesar in the temples of conquered peoples. They were trying to enforce or, or compel that same religion on the peoples of the conquered provinces. So they wanted a one-world religion. At that time, is without doubt, they would allow certain departures from it in certain instances, but they wanted everybody to worship Caesar. And if you worship Caesar, and if you worship the gods of the Roman, of the Romans, then the Romans are going to be able to control what you think. You can't really rule over me until you can control my mind. If you can't control my mind, there's always the possibility that I'm going to rebel against your rule. And, and, overcome you. We see that same thing going on today, all throughout the nations of Christendom, that the governments want to control what we think, so that there's no dissent against government policies, no matter what they do. So some things never change. There's nothing new under the sun. We see these international media corporations in bed with our governments in order to affect that control and to lead the people like sheep to the slaughter. COVID vaccines comes to mind. Yeah, and there's even people who, who fight for that belief. They, they want everybody vaccinated, right? And there are people who blindly go along with it. So these Romans, they couldn't learn anything that was contrary to the Roman religion. They feared that. They were in fear of it. These men are teaching customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. 
They didn't want to hear anything contrary to the religion of Rome. They were in fear of it. From Pliny the Elder, from his Natural History, Book 30, Chapter 4, on the Druids of the Gallic Provinces. And this is a, a brief, compared to the last few, this is a brief citation. The Gallic Provinces, too, were pervaded by the magic art. And that even down to a period within memory. For it was the Emperor Tiberius that put down their Druids. And actually, Tiberius only outlawed Druidism on paper. And all that tribe of wizards and physicians. But why make further mention of these prohibitions with reference to an art which has now crossed the very ocean even, and has penetrated to the void recesses of nature, the shores of the oceans. At the present day, struck with fascination, Britannia still cultivates this art, and that with ceremonial so august, that she might almost seem to have been the first to communicate them to the people of Persia. Now, that's an important citation, which I will exploit later. That's an important, an important statement, which I will exploit later. To such a degree are nations throughout the whole world, totally different as they are, and quite unknown to one another, in accord upon this one point. Such being the fact, then, we cannot too highly appreciate the obligation that is due to the Roman people for having put an end to these monstrous rites, in accordance with which to murder a man was to do an act of the greatest devoutness, and to eat his flesh was to secure the highest blessings of wealth. Now, Pliny, Pliny the Elder was more or less a contemporary with the historian Tacitus. He died in 79 AD. Tacitus was most likely already writing by 79 AD, the year of the four emperors which he covered in his histories, having led to the, having been right after the death of Nero and right before the rise of Vespasian as emperor. I believe it was in 69 or 70 AD, the year of the four emperors, maybe 68 to 70. It was like a year and a few months, right? But it was right around then. So Pliny the Elder died in 79 AD, and Tacitus was most likely already writing at that time, but not necessarily published by that time. If I remember correctly, he was probably published around 90 AD. But, of course, it seems that some of these accounts are fulfilled with embellishments. As it was described by Suetonius in his Lives of the Twelve Caesars of Claudius in Part 25, it says he utterly abolished the cruel and inhuman religion of the Druids among the Gauls. So that's like 20 years after Tiberius, maybe 15, under which Augustus had merely been prohibited to Roman citizens. Augustus had merely, the, the religion of the Druids had 
merely been prohibited to Roman citizens. So Augustus prohibited the Roman citizens from examining the religion of the Druids or practicing the religion of the Druids because the religion of Roman citizens was regulated. But under Augustus, even though Julius Caesar conquered Gaul, under Augustus, Britain was not yet conquered. Britain was conquered in the time of Claudius. During the reign of that same Claudius, the historian Tacitus left us an account which described the role of the Druids in the battle with the Iceni, while Britain was governed by a different Suetonius, Suetonius Paulinus. Suetonius, the historian, I believe was Suetonius Tranquillatus, or Suetonius Tranquillinus, or, or something like that. I don't remember exactly. I didn't record his full name. He's commonly known as Suetonius. So this Suetonius Paulinus, who's the governor of Britain under Claudius, he's commonly known to historians as Paulinus, as to not confuse him with Suetonius the historian. <clears throat> yeah, and um, Bill, I think that um, this island that you're going to mention, this was just off the coast of Wales, and um, according to the Romans, this was the centre of... Um, Druidism, that like it was the Druid island, supposedly, or, or what they imagined, right? Yes, it is. They imagined the island of Mona, which is the modern Anglesey, to be the, the, the chief island, the chief center of Druidism. Now, we don't know that that's true. There seem to have been many centers of Druidism throughout Britain and Gaul, or at least more than one. This is from. Yeah, and, um, I'm sorry. So I was on. just going to say, a lot of tribes fled Gaul when Caesar came and settled in Britain. So, so um, Britain was a bit crazy with all constant migrations at that time of all different tribes, right? So it was all mixed up. So, so maybe that's why the Druids were centered there with all these new settlements of tribes in the southeast. Yes, it does seem to have been a refuge for many people of Gaul, and Britain seems always to have been in a state of flux. It, it never seems to have been actually, actually had a stable population for a very long time, right? I, I mean, like over centuries. That with the invasions of all the, the, the Phoenici first the Phoenicians, perhaps in antiquity it, it had a stable population, when the Phoenicians were, were the primary tribe there. But from the time of the Kimri and and then the, the Romans and the Gauls, or the Gauls and then the Romans and, and then the Anglo-Saxons, Britain seems to have always been in a state of flux in its population. After the Anglo-Saxons, it was the Danes. So every couple of centuries, it seems there was a, a new injection of population into Britain, which caused turmoil. At least very often. This is from Tacitus's Annals of Rome, Book 14, Chapters 29 and 30. From the middle of Chapter 29. For the present, however, Britain was in the charge of Suetonius Paulinus. In military skill and in popular report, 
which allows no man to lack his rival, a formidable competitor to Corbulo, and anxious to equal the laurels of the recovery of Armenia, which I believe Corbulo had, had performed, by crushing a national enemy in relation to the, Brit- the British. He prepared accordingly to attack the island of Mona, which had a considerable population of its own, while serving as a haven for refugees and, in view of the shallow and variable channel, constructed a flotilla of boats with flat bottoms. By this method, the infantry crossed, the cavalry who followed did so by fording or, in deeper water, by swimming at the side of their horses. On the beach stood the adverse array, a serried mass of arms and men, with women flitting between the ranks, in the style of furies, in robes of deathly black and with disheveled hair. They brandished their torches, while a circle of druids, lifting their hands to heaven and showering imprecations, struck the troops with such an awe at the extraordinary spectacle that, as though their limbs were paralyzed, they exposed their bodies to wounds without an attempt at movement. Then, reassured by their general, and inciting each other never to flinch before a band of females and fanatics, they charged behind the standards, cut down all who met them, and enveloped the enemy in his own flames. The next step was to install a garrison among the conquered population and to demolish the groves consecrated to their savage cults, for they considered it a duty to consult their deities by means of human entrails. While he was thus occupied, the sudden revolt of the province, meaning the province of the Iceni, and the revolt of Boudicca after her estate was plundered and her daughters were raped by the Romans, was announced to Suetonius. So he was, he, he took the island of Mona, but then he was distracted and had to go off to face the uprising of the Iceni, the revolt of Boudicca. Some historians, some form of um, funeral that they were doing. I, I've read that that like a large funeral, and uh, the druids were just conducting it, and they just happened to come in at the exact time, right? Well, well, right. I'm sure there are alternative explanations or accounts of this, but this is the way the Romans saw it, and it it's more important to see the corroboration of what Tacitus had said about the Druids and and how it pretty much corroborates things that Pliny or Diodorus or Strabo had said. But some historians or or pseudo-historians see this incident as the Druids' last stand, as if all of the Druids of Britain were on this island of Mona. Others claim that Suetonius Paulinus's motive for invasion was to wipe out the Druids, but there's no indication of that in the actual surviving histories, either in Tacitus or in Dio Cassius, who we're not citing here, who does not even mention Druids in connection with Paulinus's presence at Mona. So, if Dio Cassius 
a, a historian of the second century didn't mention Druids in connection with the conquering of Mona, that then how could Druids have really been the factor for the invasion of Mona? That makes no sense at all. They fail to note that after Tacitus, there is hardly a history of Britain from a perspective which was not either Roman or Christian. And there is hardly a history at all which mentions Britain or Ireland in any detail outside of that part of Britain controlled by Rome. Both Procopius, who was a 6th century Byzantine historian, roughly about 530-540 BC, AD, I'm sorry, AD, around the time of Justinian, Procopius was a member of Justinian's court, and Jordanes, who was the historian of the Goths in the 6th century, both of those men each turned to writers of the first century for what little they knew about Britain. So in other words, there were no um, authoritative histories of the British outside of Roman Britain, and, and even in many respects, including Roman Britain, there were no authoritative histories of Britain between the first century and the time when Procopius was writing, or the time when Jordanus was writing, in the sixth century. So, to me, that's amazing. I, I think it was. Um, I think it was just Claudius when he took the reign of emperor. You know, he felt overwhelmed, and he and he needed to conquer somewhere to prove that he was um, just as good as uh, Augustus and uh, Julius Caesar. And Britain was the prime place to go. Right, he, he, Caesar had already landed there. And by taking that, he, he got a bit of glory, right? And he could say that he was equal to the previous two. Uh, that, that's what I would reckon. Well, well yeah, you know, that might be, and, and that I think is a valid assessment. Julius Caesar failed to conquer Britain. He tried to invade Britain twice, and he was repelled both times. And after that, the Romans really didn't try again until the time of Claudius, but Tiberius and Augustus had both tried to conquer Germany north of the Rhine and continually failed. The loss of the legions of Varus was in the time of Augustus, I, I think around maybe 6 AD or something like that. And, and they consistently failed to take Germany, what we know today is Germany. So Britain was the logical place. Yes, it seems to be. And, and Claudius would have the honor of conquering something that Julius Caesar failed to conquer. So that would be a great distinction for him. And, and that's also hinted at in Tacitus of Suetonius Paulinus, that he, he would get at least as much glory for conquering Britain for Claudius as Corbulo had had gotten or was evidently getting for recovering Armenia from the Parthians because the Romans were constantly fighting over Armenia with the Parthians. 
Yeah, and um, the the general um, G- Germanicus, he he had a lot of success in Germany, but then because of jelly, jealousy from uh, the emperor Tiberius, he pulled him away. Right, that's what Tacitus thinks. But but it's interesting at that time um, Germany wasn't that strong, right? So he probably would have had a lot of success. So maybe Yahweh intervened because you know Germany was never to be conquered, right? Just the way he done it. Well, well, right. Germany just wasn't ever to be conquered, not by the Romans. It was conquered by other Germans. It was conquered by the Americans and the British. I'm sorry, but no, it was never to be conquered by, by another people. And we see that in the prophecy of Daniel. So little is known about the Druids. And little of what is known is actually firsthand. But what was recorded of them seems to depict them in a way where we can imagine they had a mixture of both Levitical and pagan, or evidently even Canaanite traditions. And that we would expect, that is what we would expect of the children of Israel from the time of the ninth century before Christ. When the, the quote-unquote Phoenicians were inhabiting Britain, when they were taking the, the the when they were mining tin in Cornwall and bringing it back to Palestine, they were the first Druids in Britain, and and we actually saw that same thing attested in the histories of the four masters, the Irish history. Encyclopedia Britannica offers this summary of the Druids in their article on the subject, and this is brief. Druid, member of the learned class among the ancient Celts. They acted as priests, teachers, and judges. The earliest known records of the Druids come from the 3rd century B.C., Their name may have come from a Celtic word meaning knower of the oak, the oak tree. Very little is known for certain about the Druids who kept no records of their own. And here we have seen that Pliny the Elder had called the Druids a tribe of wizards and physicians. And it was also a priestly tribe of wizards in Mesopotamia many of whom may have apparently been Levites, who were called Magi. So Pliny himself had also said, and Pliny believed that the Britons were ignorant of Mesopotamia, and that the Magi of Mesopotamia were ignorant of the Britons, and that does seem to be the case, because these are various migrations of the Israelites. They're not the same migration. The Britons had mostly arrived by sea long before the Assyrian deportations that had brought many of the Israelites in, into northern Mesopotamia. So, Pliny himself had also said that Britannia still cultivates this art, and that with ceremonial so August, that she might also seem to have been the first to communicate them to the people of Persia. If such wizards and physicians were 
common across the ancient world. Perhaps Pliny could not have made such a connection, and he would not have made it. And therefore it seems that Druids and Magi may have had more in common with one another than with the priestly cults of other nations, such as the Greeks and Romans. Now, now that's important to discuss, and, and I'll note it again a little later on. But with this, we shall offer a brief discussion of the Magi, as at least some of them were apparently also Levites. We should probably not comment on Zoroastrianism here, but it is difficult not to notice. The religion is assumed to be very old. I don't believe it is. But it is not mentioned in any texts until the 5th century BC. Any texts or inscriptions until the 5th century BC. There were Magi later in history who were Zoroastrian priests. But that does not mean that all the Magi followed Zoroaster. The first mention of Magi in Persian inscriptions is in the Behistun inscription of Darius I, circa 520 BC, who refers to some of the Magi as rebels. From the Encyclopedia Britannica article on the Magus. Magus, plural Magi, member of an ancient Persian clan. Now, I don't believe that's quite accurate, but that's okay. We'll let it stand. Specializing in cultic activities. The name is the Latinized form of Magoi. That's a reference to the Greek of Herodotus. The ancient Greek transliteration of the Iranian original. Now, I don't believe that the word is originally Iranian either. From it, the word magic is derived. And that is true. According to the Wikipedia article on Magus, the word is generally assumed to be a loan word from Median, the language of the Medes. So there is an apparent conflict among the academics because the Encyclopedia Britannica believes something different. As we may see, the historian Herodotus also thought the Magi were originally Medes. So, continuing with the Britannica article, it is disputed whether the Magi were from the beginning followers of Zoroaster and his first propagandists, and I agree with that. The Magi were not originally followers of Zoroaster. Now, maybe some of the Magi who were who never immigrated out of Mesopotamia, who stayed behind in Mesopotamia or in Persia throughout later history. Maybe some of them eventually became followers of Zoroaster. So I believe that this portion of this Britannica article is accurate. So, they do not appear as such as followers of Zoroaster. In the trilingual inscription of Besetan, that's how they spelled Behistun, in which Darius the Great describes his speedy and final triumph over the Magi who had revolted against his rule, 522 BC. 
Rather, it appears that they constructed a priesthood serving several religions. Now, that might be the appearance of it, but I don't believe that. I believe that the Magi were a priestly caste who, over the course of history, had gotten involved in different religions. So, the article continues, and it says, The Magi were a priestly caste during the Seleucid, Parthian, and Sasanian periods. Later parts of the Avesta, such as the ritualistic sessions, sections of the Videvdat, probably derive from them. From the first century and onward, the word in its Syriac form, Maguse, was applied to magicians and soothsayers, chiefly from Babylonia, with a reputation for the most varied forms of wisdom. As long as the Persian Empire lasted, there was always a distinction between the Persian Magi, who were credited with profound and extraordinary religious knowledge, and the Babylonian Magi, who were often considered to be outright impostors. So, that's what Britannica has to say about the Magi. Didn't all the um, <coughs> Jews flee to, to Babylon after the first century? Well, well yes, the, the Jews were actually... There were a great number of Judah in Babylon, it seems, through the first century. People who still identified as Judah, who were descendants of the Judahites of the Babylonian deportation that never returned to Palestine. But for that reason, a great number of Edomite Jews did go to Babylon, and the Babylonian Talmud was later written there. And they stayed evidently in Babylon. But Peter, at the end of his life, at the end of his ministry, as we see in his two epistles, the Apostle Peter is in Babylon, attempting to evidently convert the circumcision to Christ because he was the Apostle to the circumcision, according to the book of Acts. So it would be natural for Peter to have gone to Babylon. We see in Acts chapter 2, that there are Judeans, and it's not proper to call them Jews, there are Judahites or Judeans from Parthia and from Media and from Babylonia in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they were witnesses to that first Christian Pentecost. And that's what's being stated in Acts chapter 2. So, we know that Peter going to Babylon, there must have been a significant number of true Judahites there. But later on, it became infested with the Edomite variety of Jews. They may have been there in small numbers already or in certain numbers already. And they produced the Babylonian Talmud several centuries after the time of the Apostles. So they were and, probably um, the imposters, right? I mean that there there is Simon Magus who's mm-hmm. mentioned in the in the book of Acts, who certainly is one of those imposters. Imposters, right? Yeah, yeah. 
And uh, it's astonishing that they always try to say Iranian people, like like they claim the Scythians were an Iranian people, the Parthians were an Iranian people, when um, Iran was only formed a few decades ago, right? So so they're taking liberties there, trying to go 2,000 years back in the future and claim that they're the same people as now, right? Well, well right, because the, the Iranian people are actually Arabs today. They've been Arabized. They were. They started becoming Arabs with the Islamic invasions, with the what, which came from Arabia, right? So, with the Islamic invasions, they became an Arab people. They're not Iranian anymore. That word Iranian is Iran is a contraction of the word Aryan. Before. I, before the land was called Iran, it was always historically Persia. Even in the histories of, of the British occupation of India and what's known today as Iran and their wars with the so-called Iranians, the, the British historians always referred to them as Persians. They never referred to them as Iran. That's a new name. And even when they were called Persians in the 19th century, they were really Arabs. They were no longer Persian by race. They haven't been Persians in, in over 1,500 years. Yeah, they're, they're essentially just trying to um, get get it across that these people were always Arabs, or, you know, for thousands of years right from the beginning. It's just a sneaky trick, right? Well, Absolutely. That they right that they want us to believe that and and they base all of their evaluations of history on that wrong assumption. It's a false assumption. It's incredible that the masters of political correctness what they do with these books. It is incredible the the wrong impressions that they give as they write these articles. Yes, I would agree. And um, just just one more thing. Um, I did come across a book that gave an alternative um, possibility for the name Druid, um, and uh, it believe it was believed that it was from a Celtic word Druthin, and it meant a servant of truth. But but I've only got one source uh, from a book, and I was unable to find uh, this Celtic word. So so I but I probably think it's more likely just to be from oak. Because uh, this this was the the Romans' perspective, right? They just observed that they always met in the oak trees and performed their rituals. So they probably just named them the oak men, right? That that makes more logical sense than um, a servant of truth. But I thought I'd just mention it, anyways. Well, well, that that's acceptable, and I I don't I've always been skeptical about the contention of all these Roman historians that this word druid came from a word for oak tree, even though I've repeated it here without criticism, because I don't think it's all that important to what we're trying to state here. The, the word, is there literature, is there a separate witness that the word, that a word similar to druid meant oak tree in ancient British or an ancient Gallic or Celtic? Do we have no, a, no, a I've witness never found to that? that? I'm sorry. No, I haven't been able to find find it. So maybe it's simply the Romans that assumed 
that the because the word druid was similar to the Greek word for an oak tree, maybe they simply assumed there was a connection there, but there really is no connection. So I've always been kind of skeptical of that, but the medieval Irish writers seem to have accepted it. Yeah. Seem to have accepted it in the books in the, in the notes on from the four masters on on the writings of the four masters they seem to have accepted it so i don't maybe they just didn't have a better reason maybe they just didn't have a better theory on the origin or name so yes it, it's good to question that i would agree yeah, from and, and herodotus that, um i'm sorry you know, um at some point the um you know, you had nobles and classes and all that, that they could send their um, children to be educated by the Druids. You know, they had um, learning centers. So, um, you know, that's where it could be a servant of truth. I don't know. But but it seems to be that they were also used as an education center as well for, for all the nobles as well. Well, the children of nobles have always historically been educated by the priestly class of our race. And if you examine the universities of the medieval period, the German universities and other universities, it was the priests and monks of the Roman Catholic Church who had always operated the universities, where the, noble, the, the children of nobles were educated. Now, some nobles, such as kings, would be so wealthy that they would hire private tutors to tutor their children. But most of the noble families sent their sons off to universities. They were operated by the church. So it's natural for the priestly caste to also be the instructors of the youth. And that way, the youth would be educated and inculcated with all of the traditions and the perspective of history that the people held in common, that the priestly caste of, of the state held in common, it, it's important to a properly functioning society to have a similar perspective on history for a nation to be cohesive. If there's no similar perspective on history, if there's no similar knowledge among the people of the experience of the nation throughout time, if there's no common God and common mode of worship of that God, if there's no higher power or authority by which morality is defined in a concrete manner, then there's never going to be cohesion in a nation, and it's never going to stand. Period. And look at America, how divided it is today. Because there's no more common history, common perspective, common morality. And, and for that reason, in the Jewish age of post-Christianity, as they like to call it, and, and pop culture and media, there's no cohesiveness in any Western nation any longer. But 150 years ago, we were cohesive for the most part. 
Right. What what was it? Um, the other day, a, a nigger robbed robbed the guy's bike, and uh, the paper made it that they was just having a little argument over a bike, a little fight, when clearly he was just trying to rob it. It shows well, I, you that the the law is completely biased depending on the situation. As you absolutely. said, there's no upper authority, right or wrong. Absolutely. I've seen descriptions like that very often in, in the newspapers, in local newspapers, in local media, in, in local TV reports, where a, a, a nigger would try to rob a youth, a white man, a, a, a white boy of a bicycle or some other object, and the media would describe it as a fight over an object, a fight over a bicycle. And and that that's not true. That's not what that's not what's going on there. It's a robbery. But they won't describe it like that. Because it's a black youth stealing a white boy's bike. They won't call it a robbery, they'll call it a fight over a bicycle. It's incredible. Yeah. And and just sorry, just one more thing. Um, with, with the Romans, the first thing they did was took all the nobles' sons and educated them back at Rome, right? So that when they came back, they would have a Roman perspective, want to be Romans, live like Romans, have a Roman society, and not want to be, um, you know, in these old quote unquote savage traditions when they came back to Gaul and Britain, etc. Yes, that's true. Men who were given. Um, appointments by the Romans to be kings or, or heads of, of provinces or conquered nations, such as Herod the Great. Herod, I, I hate to call him Herod the Great, but that's what he's commonly known as because of the Jewish spin on, on history. He should be called Herod the Edomite. Herod had given his own sons up as hostages to Rome. It was common to give your sons over, if you had an appointment in, in, a, in a subjugated nation, to give your sons and, and sometimes even extended male members of your family up to the Romans in order that they be educated as Rome so that they are inculcated, so that they are programmed in the Roman religion, in love for the Roman state, in, in the Roman frame of mind, and mentally they would be very amenable and, and they would be Romans when they went back home. They would hopefully be committed to the Roman cause and the perpetuation of the Roman Empire. Yes, that's a form of programming, social programming, but that was common. Okay, from Herodotus, from the Histories, Book 1. I have several citations. They're all from Book 1. The historian Herodotus mentioned the Magi on several occasions in Book 1 of his Histories. First in Chapter 101, where he imagined that the Magi were a peculiar tribe, saying that the Median tribes, the, tri the tribes of the Medes, are these... The Busay, the Paratacini, the Strucates, the Arizanti, the Budi, the Magi. So many are their tribes. So some dictionaries and lexicons might say that this word for tribe, phule or phile, can mean a caste. 
But if most of these are ethnic tribes, then it's very likely that they all may be ethnic tribes, that certain tribes live in one way or another, and the Magi are a tribe. It's very possible that Herodotus understood that among the Medes, only one particular tribe of men filled this role of Magi. Now, that's not necessary, but it's very possible. So we see that Herodotus had believed that the Magi belonged originally to the Medes. And we know from scripture and history that many of the children of Israel had been settled by the Assyrians in the cities of the Medes, as we read in 2 Kings chapter 17 and 18. But writing of his own time, he mentions Magi often in the context of the Persians, as the Medes were a significant part of their empire, and the Magi remained influential within the empire. Later in his histories, Herodotus wrote that these Medes were anciently called by all people Arians. Now, now one more thing I have to state about Herodotus is that Herodotus would not have known to distinguish the Israelites dwelling in Media with Medes. He, he most likely would not have had the knowledge necessary to make that distinction. And Herodotus had called the Judeans on three occasions in his histories. He called them the Syrians of Palestine. So he didn't have the knowledge necessary to distinguish Judeans from Syrians. He just thought that Judeans were Syrians in Palestine rather than further north in Syria. So, that being said, in chapter 140 of the histories, we read, So much I could say of them, of my own certain knowledge. But there are other matters concerning the dead which are secretly and obscurely told. How the dead bodies of Persians are not buried before they have been mangled by a bird or dog. That this is the way of the Magians, I know for a certainty, for they do not conceal the practice. But this is certain, that before the Persians bury the body in the earth, they embalm it in wax. These Magians, or Magi, are much unlike to the priests of Egypt as to all other men. For the priests count it sacrilege to kill aught that lives, save what they sacrifice. In other words, don't kill anything unless you're sacrificing it. But the Magians kill with their own hands every creature, save only dogs and men. They kill all alike, ants and snakes, creeping and flying things, and take much pride therein. Leaving this custom to be such as it had been from the first, I return now to my former story. And we must note that the Levites had killed their sacrifices with their own hands. Herodotus had described the sacrifices of the Magi a little earlier, in chapter 132, where he wrote, And this is their fashion of sacrifice to the aforesaid gods. When about to sacrifice, they neither build altars nor kindle fire. They used no libations, nor music, nor fillets, fillets, 
nor barley meal, but to whomsoever of the gods a man will sacrifice, he leads the beast to an open space and then calls on the god, himself wearing a wreath on his cap of myrtle for choice. Pretty odd. To pray for blessings for himself alone is not lawful for the sacrificer. Rather, he prays that it may be well with the king and all the Persians, for he reckons himself among them. He then cuts the victim limb from limb into portions, and having boiled the flesh, spreads the softest grass, trefoil by choice, and places all of it on this. So when he has disposed it a Magian comes near and chants over it the song of the birth of the gods, as the Persian tradition relates it. For no sacrifice can be offered without a Magian or a Magi. Then, after a little while, the sacrificer carries away the flesh and uses it as he pleases. So, here Herodotus even described the sacrifice a little differently where a man killed it himself, but a Magi serving as a priest was nevertheless required. As a, the Persians would not sacrifice without a Magus, the Celts would not sacrifice without a Druid. So we see that in both places, the presence of such a priest was necessary for the sacrifice to be legitimate and accepted. So we see some customs common to the Druids and the Magi, and to each with those of the Levitical priests. But more significantly is the testimony of Matthew concerning the Magi who had come to Jerusalem in anticipation of the birth of the Messiah of Israel. In Matthew chapter 2, there is an account of certain Magi who had come from the east for that reason. And the east is certainly a reference to the Parthian Empire, as the Magi were a priestly caste originally found among the Medes and later among the Persians also, as we have seen in the words of the, of the 5th century BC Greek historian Herodotus. So at this time it was the Parthian Empire that ruled over the Medes and the Persians. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, this is because the Persian Empire rose and took all of it, right? Took control of the Medes. And that's why, from Herodotus', Herodotus is a perspective, he would see the uh, priestly class amongst the Persians because the Persians were ruling over the Medes, right? The Medo-Persian Empire. Right. That the As Herodotus reports... In the days before Cyrus the Great, Cyrus I, the, the Persian emperor, in the days before him, the Medes, the king of the Medes, had ruled over the Medes and the Persians. But from the time of Cyrus, whose father was a Persian, but his mother was the, the daughter of the king of the Medes, Cyrus's father was a Persian, so from the time of Cyrus, the Persians were seen as the dominant nation in the empire. And all of the later kings were Persians. So, the Parthians rose, I believe, 
and and I could be a little off on the years here. The Parthians had rose up in the third century BC, and they had conquered the Persians and the Medes and the other peoples of Mesopotamia and formed the Parthian Empire. So for about 500 years, give or take, I think around the middle of the 3rd century AD, the Parthians had ruled over that part, that whole portion of the world, and from the Indus River to the Euphrates River, which includes what we know as Iran and much of what we know as Iraq, and parts of what we know as Syria, and they had struggled with control of Armenia with the Romans. So the Parthians had controlled all of that, and it was called the Parthian Empire. But the Persians regained the upper hand in the 3rd century AD, after the Parthians had, had controlled it for 500 years, and the Persians once again became the dominant element, and it was once again called Persia. The What we know today is Iran and Iraq, they are artificial divisions created by the British in order that the British could better manage the... the land after they had conquered it. I believe those divisions were created by the British. I don't think they belonged to the Ottoman, to the Ottomans when they controlled it. But I'm not positive about that because I'm not really um, that well versed on that later period of Near Eastern history. When exactly when Iraq was split off from from Iran from Persia and those names Iraq and Iran had had been given to the lands that we know now, I think that's a British thing, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. That they just because there were um were there different divisions of um the Muslim religions that they just wanted to split it all up and have peace. So they could mine the oil. And Pakistan was basically created the same way. Split off from India. So that the Muslims could inhabit Pakistan and the Hindus could stay in India. But Pakistan, I believe, was actually once part of British India. Okay, that's a digression. The Magi came to Jerusalem... Because they understood the time of the birth of the Messiah from the appearance of a certain star. Evidently, from some ancient knowledge which is not recorded in the Old Testament. But the word of God was only given to the children of Israel. And the promised Messiah was the exclusive savior of the children of Israel. Statements which are explicit in the Old Testament, such as in the 147th Psalm, or in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 3, or chapter 45, verse 15, and elsewhere. No other nation would have, should have, or even could have expected a Messiah. It's not in the context, the historical context, of anyone but the children of Israel. So it is likely that these Magi were descendants 
of the ancient Israelites. In fact, it's not only likely, it's certain. Many of whom had been resettled in the cities of the Medes. According to both the Assyrian inscriptions and the biblical accounts found in 2 Kings chapters 17 and 18. And as we have just cited, Herodotus had written that the Magi were a tribe or race among the Medes. So we see that the Magi came from ancient media. And even if the words of Herodotus do not prove conclusively that they were ancient Israelites, of whom Herodotus certainly seemed to be ignorant, the fact that these Magi were awaiting a Messiah in Israel around this time certainly does provide that proof. The fact that men such as Pliny noticed similarities between Druids and Magi, as opposed to all of the other pagan priesthoods, and that these two are also similar to the ancient Levites, cannot be overlooked as no other race outside of Palestine had such customs. Therefore, we may find it safe to conclude that both Magi and Druids were extensions of the functions of the Israelite tribe of Levi in the places where Israel had been in captivity. Yes, yeah, interesting. He even thought that the uh, Magi came from Britain, from, from the Druids. That was the origination, right? Plenty. Yes, exactly. And that's his statement. So, so it may seem to have been speculation, but if these practices of, of the... Now, they had some practices which were not in common with the Levites, but we see in, in the scriptures themselves that many of these Levitical priests went off into paganism along with the rest of the children of Israel. So why would their practices be exactly like the Levites? They wouldn't. We would expect pagan influences to have been included in what they were doing. And that's what we see in, in the Druids and the Magi is many Levitical practices along with many pagan influences. That's what I would expect to see. So if these things were natural among the peoples of Europe, then I'm sure that Pliny would not have likened the Druids to the Magi. Why would he if everybody did these things? But the truth is that everybody did not do these things. Only the Druids and the Magi did. And a lot of those things happened to be things that the Levites did. So there's definitely a very plausible connection. And I would assert that there is a connection once we understand the historical side of it. The historical side of the children of Israel and their presence in ancient media and Parthia, and among the Persians, and among the Assyrians, as they were resettled in the deportations, and also the presence of the same children of Israel in Britain and Ireland and, and the coasts of Gaul, as they had settled there as Danans and Phoenicians many centuries before. So we'll discuss some of those historical connections 
speaking of the, the blessings upon Dan and Asher and Naphtali and Zebulun in, in the weeks to come. Yep, brilliant. Um, Bill, do you believe that the, the Druids, I, I heard that they also had, um, that the they also anticipated a Messiah, that, that you know, the name Joshua must have, um, you know, been there in, in tradition, and some of them might have been aware of it. Uh, have you ever read anything about that? Well, well, I have read that, and I have heard that. Um, Yesu and and being their name for Christ, much like the Greek Yesus, and and a lot of those other connections. But I've only read about it in materials that could be related to British Israel. And for that reason, I haven't discussed any of that in, in these last two presentations, because I would rather read about it in original sources. But I haven't seen those original sources. In so, other yeah, words... Basically, it can't be proven. Right. In other words, wherever these British Israel writers got this from, and I'm familiar with... Um, I think it's Isabel Hill Elder or something like that, Kelt Druid and Keldy. I've read that book, but I've never seen her sources. I want to see her sources before I repeat any of that. I'm not saying it's not true. I'm just saying that I would rather stick to original sources than to repeat British Israel writings which very often are speculation i mean there's a lot of speculation in a lot of british israel writers and a lot of false history that i think serves to discredit us when we when we repeat it one of the perpetrators of that is george joed and his drama of the lost disciples which i think is all pure bullshit to be honest okay that's my opinion I don't like a lot of British Israel literature because it, it's speculation and romantic fantasy in a lot of respects. I'm not discrediting all of it. There were some good British Israel writers, but a lot of it's speculation and fantasy. A lot of the writers they promoted, such as um, Sidney Bristow and Sargon the Magnificent, that thing is just a novel. That's just a, a romantic novel. It doesn't belong on any Christian bookshelf. And there's a lot of other works like that. That's my opinion. I'd like to show you things out of old books when I could find them and, and read them and, and find legitimate parallels because we have the truth. It, if, the, if the Israelites were black, then their Levites would have practices much like voodoo witch doctors. <laughs> and I don't see them casting chicken bones to tell the future. <laughs> I don't think any of that's in the scripture. Yep, or sticking their head up uh, a cow's ass, right? Right, to, to, yeah, to do unseemly things with the products of the cow's menstruation. Wow. Okay, thank you. We will... Um, All right, cheers, Bill. We will be talking about Dan next, I believe. Yep, the the, the tribe of Dan um, next. I look forward to that. Thank, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of European people. Praise Yahweh.